I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six oh, like and a half years. I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast post New York City, Owen here. Murph is in studio with me. Hi, Kieran. Hello there, Owen. And Ken, unfortunately, we lost somewhere along the way. Ken Early, where where are you exactly? Uh, I'm sitting on a colonial-style uh, veranda, um, what, looking out over the uh, the sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean. Oh. Go on, give us more uh, detail. With, with the, the sounds of the, the dawn chorus, uh, woodpeckers, uh, uh, battering away at uh, a tree bark to try and I don't know why they why they actually do that. Don't they go? Do, 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 you know, you know the way. Have you ever heard one? Of course, yeah. No. yeah I mean, it, it, well, it's, it's, it's the, yeah, it is the main association one would have with a woodpecker. It's just, a, I, I guess, to keep themselves occupied. Why does it, why does anyone listen to a podcast, Ken? Just you know, you got to while away forty minutes of your day, and the woodpeckers do it by whacking their head off. Woodpeckers gonna peck, Ken. <laughs> Podcasters gonna podcast. Gonna peck. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a beautiful scene here, Owen, just outside the Acadian National Park, uh, the northeastern tip of the United States, in the the great uh, state of Maine. Ooh! Uh, so that's that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, the uh, the state is currently convulsed over uh, various lobster-related controversies <laughs> um, on the license plate. Killer lobsters, or, or 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 something a little more prosaic. I beg your pardon? Killer lobsters or something more prosaic? Well, essentially, you know you know the way a lot of US states, the, the license plate will have a little picture associated with the state. Yeah. You know, evo- evoking something to do with the state. So in Maine, um, there are a couple of different versions. One of them is like a little bird sitting on a kind of twig that has a pine cone coming out of it. Um, but the other one is a lobster. A lobster, uh, lobster sitting on a kind of a rock, proudly by the sea. The only thing is that in the uh, in the license plate picture, the lobster is red, which means it's been cooked, uh, which is which is just ridiculous. I mean, what is a cooked lobster doing sitting proudly on a rock next to the sea, sort of cha- with a challenging expression on its face? You know, sort of saying, "Welcome to Maine, but be careful how you treat me." It's it's nonsense. People are saying the lobster should be blue. Uh, you know, this red lobster shows that whoever invented this thing has literally never seen a lobster in any other setting other than on on a plate. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the kind of thing that's that's going on up here. You know, it's a it's a fairly um, it's a fairly fraught situation. Nice to get away from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been commuting with nature, and mm-hmm. I've been I've been walking, um, climbing rocks, uh, walking uh, through the the trails. You know, through the through the marshes and the pine barrens and, uh, you know, uh, standing on atop mighty peaks, staring out over the ocean and uh, just trying to get a bit closer to God, you know? <laughs> uh, a long way from the, was it the Smithfield Hall where you watched Liverpool Dortmund? I just wanted to give our listeners a, yeah. an, an idea of what it's like these days to watch 
foot, big football games in New York in the US. Uh, pretty was there a pretty raucous crowd that evening, or that that afternoon? I guess American time. Uh, yeah, well, there was there was a big crowd there. Um, although apparently I, I went to the wrong place. Uh, a listener had been in touch uh, to say uh, um, that oh, you know, what the FIFA president was in my kind of local place. And I said, oh, do you mean, do you mean Smithfields? Uh, because the barman in Smithfields was kind of boasting about how Gianni Infantino had dropped in to watch the Barcelona game. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that is the one. But uh, you shouldn't have gone there for the Liverpool game. Um, it's There's one at 11th Street, basically a bar at 11th Street, where apparently uh, if Liverpool are playing, there's a lot of Liverpool fans. Smithfield apparently is more for fans of Bayern, Barcelona, West Ham, and Manchester United, uh, which might explain why <laughs> why most of the crowd there seems to be supporting Dortmund. Well, maybe not the Bayern fans, uh, but yeah, it was um, yeah, it was good. I mean, it, it's it's kind of a weird thing to do, you know, to go in and watch a game that's on at night in a different country while it's still sort of a sunny day, a sunny afternoon outside. You know, yeah, you kind of order a beer just out of habit. And then you're like, oh, I don't really know if I want to have this beer just yet. But, you know, you drink it and then obviously you drink another beer because, you know, at that stage you're developing the thirst. Yeah. Um, um, but, yeah, it's it's not really, it's obviously not that good a kickoff time for Americans. Um, this is one of the things that people have been saying to us. You know, one of the reasons that the Premier League is kind of doing so well there or kind of stealing a march on other foreign leagues it has to do with just the convenience. Um, like, I mean, it was, I was writing about it today, the Saint-Étienne president or co-president um, had been complaining a while ago that, in his opinion, this was after a bunch of these TV deals that come through for the Premier League. He was saying, this is a disaster, you know, for, for the rest of us. We're looking at a, a league that's going to become, you know, the NBA of football. It's going to be bigger than the Champions League, which maybe sounded a little implausible at the time. Um but when you see the fact that that uh, you know the the problem with the, the problem the Champions League has is that a midweek afternoon kickoff is not such a good time for the American audience. The American audience is increasingly a huge, a vital audience, um, you know, in terms of uh, the sort of income that that all these leagues can make. So, uh, so yeah, maybe it is going to get bigger than the than the Champions League, and Leicester will be the champions of it. I made the slightly wrong move myself, Ken, in going to watch the Leicester game yesterday. Uh, this is before we left New York. I was choosing between a couple of sports bars. Went to Jack Dempsey's on I think Thirty Third Street, West Thirty Third mm-hmm. Street, which was which looked like it could have been an okay spot in the in in the right environment. But I think my major issue was there were quite a few. This is about nine in the morning. Bear in mind, so you're in a certain headspace at nine in the morning. Where uh, yeah. re- really, I just wanted a, a coffee and a bit of breakfast and watch the football. There were quite a few Celtic fans who I think had been drowning their sorrows for a considerable amount of time after oh, losing to Rangers. Yeah. Losing to Rangers. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, and when I say drowning their sorrows, they really had drowned their sorrows by this point. I mean, their their sorrows were just completely soaked. Uh, yeah. They were barely, barely even uh, legible anymore. And it was just a little mm. bit too intense for me at that time of morning. There was music on as well, pretty loud music in one of the bars. I just thought, no, this is a little bit too much. So I, I stepped about... Uh, block away and went to a, another little bar called Legends, a quieter space, Murph, where I could just you know enjoy the football and uh, enjoy my coffee, enjoy my breakfast. And your uh, dedication to the Premier League cause was rewarded with a pretty stonkingly good game. Oh. It was, yeah. Ken, what did you make of the of Leicester getting grabbing a two two draw against West Ham? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I just think the fact that they equalised is so important, you know, because it looked you know when when that goal goes in by Cresswell. Um, it's you know that's the, what there's three minutes of normal time to go. Okay, there's no way, you know that 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 means Leicester are meant to lose today. You know, if when Cresswell scores a goal of that quality, um, the blow to morale is is greater, I think, than just conceding a goal, um, just just any normal kind of goal. That's like okay, this isn't going to be your day, Leicester. And then they somehow managed to get back. Now I do think, you know, everybody in this game was complaining about the referee, and there may be some charges arising from it, the most significant of which could involve Jamie Vardy because obviously he was sent off. And I think whether he was, I don't know whether I didn't, I didn't think the first yellow card was really a yellow card, but the second one I did think was a dive. I mean, it was, you know, he clearly engineered uh, contact. You know, he he sort of jinked into the run of the defender and sprawled forward. And it's clear that it's clear what he's trying to do. And I think that did deserve a yellow card. 
which in his case was a second. I thought it was stupid uh, for Vardy to do that. And Vardy then sort of jabbed his finger and shouted at the ref. The only thing that might save Vardy is that so many other people have had a go at the ref as well. <laughs> it, may, it may be easier just to brush the whole thing <laughs> sort of, it, sort of yeah. under the carpet rather than charge everybody. I mean, there would also be Andy Carroll who, who uh, criticised the referee after the game. Wes Morgan... Uh, well, Wes Morgan, I don't know if he has actually criticised the referee, but Andy Carroll certainly yeah. claimed that he had. <laughs> Whether that's enough for a charge, probably not. But, I mean, there were all the penalties, all the penalty decisions were somewhat dubious. I thought the referee got it right in the, on the dive for Vardy. Um, the West Ham penalty was a very marginal one. You wouldn't usually see that given you see that kind of thing happen all the time. And the Leicester one looked like a clear case of the referee saying, OK, well, if I gave it for West Ham, then I'm going to give it for that one. And to get a penalty with six seconds to go before, you know, the end of injury time. Um, yeah, I think turns what could have been a really, you know, uh, a kind of a nerve shredding defeat into a sort of, yeah, you know, we're going to be, we're still going to be okay. We'll get into that now. I did want to mention that we will be hearing from Roger Bennett later on this podcast before we left New York. Myself and Ken met up with Roger Bennett, presenter of the hugely successful Men and Blazers podcast and NBC Sports TV show. So you're going to hear that chat in a bit. But Jonathan Wilson is good to go, Jonathan. This amazing result uh, for uh, Leicester City against West Ham. Claudio Ranieri afterwards says this is more important than one point. Psychologically, it says we are there. Is he right? Are they there? I think there's something in that, certainly. I mean... Obviously, they have dropped two points and it is a home game. Um, but if you looked at the, the games they had left, I, I think you, you sort of saw West Ham as being being the one that could trip them up and could precipitate some kind of crisis. And I think the fact that they the fact that they were behind and came back to, to, to grab a, a very, very late equaliser, it, it means that they, they do take something positive out of the game. Whereas had they conceded late on, maybe th- those worries would have been more, more pronounced. It was one of those strange kind of games where everybody managed to be annoyed at the referee at the same time. Apparently, Andy Carroll was saying, yeah, I was talking to Wes Morgan there and he was saying, oh, that ref doesn't have a clue what he's doing. I'm not sure if Wes Morgan would be too happy about these the, the details of these conversations emerging, but Billich wasn't happy with it. The Leicester fans weren't happy with the ref. Did he get a hell of a lot of decisions wrong? Was he doing a little bit of evening up with the penalty at the end? I think probably with, with that last penalty, yes. Uh, I actually got a fair, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't think John Moss is a particularly good referee. I'm not saying he's terrible, but he certainly wouldn't be in my top sort of seven or eight in the Premier League. Um, but I, I actually thought he, he he did okay. I mean, the, the Vardy decision was um, a very brave one. Um, that I think, I mean, it's, it's something that's been discussed a little bit in the last week or two, that the, um, the, the, the sense that the, the Leicester story has become such a big thing and so many people want it to happen that it would be incredible if there weren't a psychological pressure on referees. That, you know, if, if, if they're not quite certain, they favour Leicester with a decision. Nobody wants to be the person who kills the Leicester dream by making the, the wrong decision. So I'm not suggesting there's a, there's, a, there's a conscious process going on, but in the same way that we know referees favour big teams and we know referees favour home teams, subconsciously, I, I, I think it would be surprising if Leicester didn't get the benefit of the odd decision. And that's something I think Alan Pardew referred to in a very clumsy way in, in those infamous programme notes. Um, so the, I, I wonder whether the, the decision to send off Vardy was Moss saying to himself, I will not be swayed by this um, possibility of me favouring Leicester. That I've, yeah, I've got to be absolutely hard. And so he, you know, I, I think you look at it, I, I think there's definitely a case that that Vardy initiated the contact and therefore it's a yellow card. He's already been booked, harshly, admittedly. But, you know, the, the first yellow card's a different decision. Was that yellow card? You can completely see why he gave it. It's a red card, which then obviously changed the pattern of the game. The West Ham penalty, I, yeah, I, I know a lot of people have said, well, yes, way worse things than that happen persistently in games. And that's true. I think the difference is... You, know, you cannot expect a referee to see everything in a box where people are grappling. But he'd, he'd identified that Morgan and Hooth were doing it. He'd spoken to them both immediately before that incident. And then, you know, that goes and happens. So there was a game between Slovenia and Russia. I can't remember now if it was a player for the Euros or a player for the World Cup. Um, and it was a key game. And this, exactly the same thing happened. And Graham Paul was the referee. And he'd seen, you know, some Russian grappling at a corner. 
you know, he, he stopped the play before the corner was taken. He, he called the Russian defender over to him and obviously said, you know, if you do that, I am watching you. I'm going to give a penalty. So Moss had warned him. The, 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 the grappling happens. He gives a penalty. I, I don't have a problem with that. And, and so, yes, there's an inconsistency there, but I think it's an unavoidable inconsistency. And when a referee has, has stopped the game to warn that player, they've got to be doubly careful. But obviously then there's you know, huge uh, fury around that and, and uh, a couple of penalty appeals. One of them, I think, for the... Um, uh, it was a binner, wasn't it, with the arm around Heath's neck? I, yeah, I and just on that, Jonathan, I, I, you know, I, I take your point in a sort of intuitive manner that if a referee has just warned a player about doing something and they do it, uh, maybe they, they've set themselves up for whatever comes their way. But I don't think there's anything in the rule book about whether or not a foul is deemed a foul based on prior warning during the game. And, the, I mean, the Robert Huth one looked to me at least as bad. Robert Huth was a... a a wrestling style move that he was taken down with and he's a big big man and yet he, he was fairly slung to the ground so I, I, I frankly I was amazed that Lesser didn't get that one yeah I, and I I mean and Moss was was looking at that if you, if you look at the replay it's in his eye line so so yeah I think he probably should have given that but at the same time Huth got away with one like that in the first half at least as bad the arm around the neck uh, I, I, I don't I mean, I'd, be, I'd, I'd love to know whether referees get guidance on on how to handle that kind of issue, whether they're told, you know, unless it's something really blatant in the box, don't give it. But if you feel it's gone too far, warn the player, and then you've got more leeway. I mean, that actually seems to me a, a, a good way of dealing with a, an otherwise impossible situation. I mean, a referee can't watch seven or eight different individual battles. Even if you have referees behind the goals, as you have in, in European games, you know, two pairs of eyes, a linesman, three pairs of eyes, they, they, they can't see all of that. So, uh, I, I, I think probably the way you should deal with it is the way Moss dealt with it. It's not perfect, but it's probably the best you've got. Um, but then I think the, the penalty that Leicester did get was was pretty soft. Yeah, oh, it was completely soft. <laughs> I don't know how that was given, to be honest. But the, it, it does. It was kind of interesting watching the body language as the players left. For example, Kasper Schmeichel was muttering to himself nonstop making this great show of being slightly angry despite the fact that they got a 2-2 draw. Is it the best case scenario for some some ways in Leicester that they still get a point out of this game and they're, they're the beneficiaries of a fairly dodgy decision at the end and yet they can somehow nurse a bit of a grievance about other decisions that will help them uh, keep up their, their energy levels? Yeah, I, I guess yeah, there's some truth in that. There's something, um, yeah, the, the, the bronca that... Uh, Diego Maradona always speaks about the, the you know the the, the fire that's, that's produced by anger. Maybe some of that will carry over. I think the best best news for Leicester is that they got Swansea next. Uh, the, of of their four remaining games, they've got the easiest one next up, and it's at, it's at home. And Swansea didn't put up much of a fight in Newcastle, so they can yeah they can get straight back on the horse. And, and you'd be surprised if they didn't win that game. Whereas if they had say the trip to Old Trafford next. Then maybe they drop points there, and maybe they think they're then thinking, "Well, hang on, we drop points in in two successive games. Maybe we are wobbling." I mean, having said that, the danger, of course, is they don't beat Swansea, and then those doubts are magnified massively because that's a game they they really ought to win. Yeah, it's uh, it's down to five points tonight, assuming Tottenham take care of Stoke City at the Britannia. Do you think they will? Um, they should, but I mean, this stage of the season, nerves set in, things are magnified. Um, I mean, Stoke. Their recent form is not particularly good. Um, they've got nothing particularly to play for. Um, uh, so, yeah, I would expect Tottenham to win that. But, you know, things happen. Jonathan Wilson, thank you. Cheers.
Yeah, it's a funny one, Murph, the way Jonathan describes referees' attitudes towards refereeing Leicester games at the moment. It's like the person, the ref is aware that there might be a perception that he's going to favour this team. Mm. So sometimes he goes too far the other way and it's too hard on them. It reminds me quite a lot of anyone you've ever talked to who had their parents teach them or, or train them a game of football as yeah. you had. Although you said your dad was okay, I think. But uh, a lot of people have had pretty tough experiences there where the teacher slash authority figure goes a little too far in proving that they're not the apple of their eye. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's what's... Go- I mean, I, it was an interesting point that Johnson was making about just, oh, I can't... I, I don't want to be the bad guy here. You know, I, I, I think that's actually still more powerful than the counterbalancing one saying, mm. oh, well, you know, everyone's saying that I should I should go easy on them, so I'll go hard on them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think really that you don't want to be, uh, as John was saying, the guy who, you know, shot Bambi's mum, <laughs> which is basically, this is basically the sporting equivalent of, uh, of, uh, of, cheating Le- Leicester out of a Premier League title at this stage. It can, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Vardy and it depends when people are listening to this podcast about that supplementary charge that he said could be laid at his door if he's found to have said anything particularly egregious uh, to the ref. But I mean, they're, they're, they're so, they've got such a thin squad as it is, you'd wonder how they would deal at this stage of the season with losing Vardy. Well... You know, I mean, they have—they haven't lost him for for much. I mean, he did—he missed a game, didn't he? he? Had to have a little operation on his groin, but maybe he just missed the FA Cup game. I can't quite remember. That was in January. Um, he is so important for their for their style of play um, because he gives them that kind of depth. He mean, means that they can hang back, but the other team has to uh, has to be really vigilant because any little ball over the top can can release Vardy. I mean, we've we've seen the brilliant goal that he scored. Yesterday, I mean, it's it's still kind of amazing to me that teams are 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 conceding these goals when the threat is so obvious. I mean, we saw Sunderland do it uh, in the previous Leicester game. It was just simple ball over the top by Drinkwater. Vardy's in scores. I mean, the penalty, the 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 non penalty rather red card incident was exactly the same. Uh, a Drinkwater chip over the top. Vardy in the kind of left channel this time dived rather than uh, rather than scored. But it's the same situation happening again this is the problem that every team that plays uh Leicester knows that it has to deal with and it means they can't commit as many players forward as as they otherwise would I mean if it's Leonardo Ojoa who, who you guess is the is the likely substitute he just doesn't have anything like the same I mean he can't he basically is too big to to run you know he's a different type of player you know he's more of a target man link player um he's not going to uh you know, rip through the defensive line and be one-on-one with the goalkeeper. Um, they could always use Okazaki, but he's more of a sort of workhorse, you know, like a Dirk Kout type player. He doesn't have that sort of speed. So he is a big loss. Uh, they could maybe handle losing him against Swansea, but if they also lose him, I think the next game will be against Manchester United, and they'd certainly want Vardy available for that. He scored against them earlier in the season. So, um, yeah, I guess everyone who wants Leicester to win the league will be hoping he doesn't... Uh, he didn't say anything too nasty. Well, they, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, they have made so few changes as well. I mean, you, you'd wonder what happens. Is it 25 changes they've made to their team from game to game this season? Uh, well, it's incredible. This is a really amazing statistic. Um, Sky were showing it the other day, uh, just before the Leicester game. Really unbelievable. Um, that uh, essentially the changes that managers make from game to game, you count up the total number of changes. Um, you know, if, if, if I pick a starting 11 for one game and then I make three changes, you know, I change three players to the next game, okay, I've got three. You know, I keep going like that from game to game. You count up the total number of changes. And obviously with the, you know, the fact that the squads are a lot bigger now, the game is physically more intense, you know, managers tend to make a lot more changes uh, than they used to do. I mean, back in the in the 60s, I mean, uh, Liverpool once won the title with, I think, Bill Shankly using, it was either 15 or 16 players all season. You know, not too many changes to his team. In, um, but in, in the Premier League era, the average number of changes that a team makes um, in, the, in a season, the, uh, rather, the, the average number of changes that the champion uh, that the title winning team makes is 95 Um, so 95 changes in total over the season Chelsea last season uh, when they won the the league made 86 changes and if you remember Jose Mourinho was accused you know the following season of having run his players into the ground you know he'd he'd asked too much for them he'd he'd made them play too too many games Chelsea of course were involved in 
uh, Europe as well got to the was it semi or quarterfinal of the Champions League so they had more games than Leicester but I mean the the record low for the Premier League era was set by Manchester United in the very first Premier League season 92-93 when they made 26 all season but that's kind of more the old era like the you know when you when you did pick the same team every game and you expected them to be able to deal with it uh, I mean Manchester United uh, you know under the same manager Alex Ferguson ha- have set the record for this 140 changes in 2008-2009 140 Leicester this season so far 25 25 so you can imagine Leicester are, are you know given that they're still you know odds on to win the league uh, are gonna maybe not break the the record uh, that was set nearly 25 years ago by Manchester United, but compared to last season, 86 under Mourinho, who you know, as I, as I mentioned, was kind of said, "Oh, how can you how can you do this to your players? How can you grind them into the dust like this?" Um, it really is an incredible testament, I suppose, to the uh, durability of their players. This is from a manager who previously was, uh, you know, accused of tinkering too much. Maybe. Uh, you know, when when Ranieri was the Chelsea manager in 2003-2004, he had a bigger squad. He had a lot of new signings. There was a lot of players competing for a place in that team, maybe more so than there is at Leicester, where the team picks itself to a degree. Um, but it does show, I suppose, uh, you know, how... I mean, Ranieri has gone with a really um, really consistent selection. That's been his, his philosophy here, and the players have been able to cope with it. It does help maybe that they were knocked out of the Cups early, so they played, I think, 41 games so far this season. Um Manchester United, when they made 140 changes, uh, I think they played 65 because they got to the FA Cup, the, the rather the League Cup final, the FA Cup semi-final, the Champions League final. So a lot more games. But still, uh, it's a really, really low total. It, it's a really kind of out of time, um, an old-fashioned approach to team selection by Ranieri. This is a very peaceful sounding conversation with Ken, isn't it, Murph? I think we, should, I think we might have to put you out in the garden permanently, Ken. It's We're very soothing, <laughs> all that bird. It's literally, it sounds like you're taking the piss and have you've installed some sort of like well you're playing some sort of uh, you know you can get them on Spotify people who can't fall asleep oh yeah yeah, yeah. you know whale like the, noises yeah whale song. noises you've basically Ken's actually still in Manhattan he's just yeah. tricking us into thinking that he's gone somewhere else well I'd, I'd rather he was still in Manhattan as opposed to being in Fairview and just not bothering to come into the office that would I think uh, that, no. that would be more upsetting <laughs> no no I'm, I'm just looking out over these these uh, rocky promontories jutting out into the uh, Atlantic the uh, the silvery uh, barked birch trees, um, shading me from the already. You don't know uh, if it's birch or not. You don't have a clue. <laughs> oh, I do know. Oh, I know it's birch. All right. It's uh, they're white uh, white bark trees with paper thin bark. Feel, but don't peel the paper thin bark <laughs> of the birch tree. That was uh, one. That was what yeah. one of the signs on the uh, trail in the forest urged me to do. I did peel off a little bit, but you know. Don't tell anyone. Take us back to New York City, Ken, and set up our interview with, with Roger Bennett. A lot of our listeners will be very familiar with his Men and Blazers. Well, with the, probably more familiar with the podcast over here, but they've got a big TV show also in the US. Yeah, Roger Bennett and Michael Davis are the Men and Blazers. Uh, they present this uh, show, which was very successful as a podcast. Uh, is now a TV show on NBCSN. And uh, we went to see him uh, in their office in Soho <clears throat> in Manhattan last week to have a little bit of a chat about, uh, I suppose, the success of their show and the growth of football in the United States generally. He had some, he had some pretty interesting thoughts, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this is the job he had. Roger Bennett, Men and Blazers, thanks so much for having us in your studio, firstly. Thanks for coming. It's a joy to have you. Can you maybe give, show us around here? You don't have to leave your seat, just tell us what we're looking at around here. Uh, well, this, this studio, this soundstage that we record uh, all of our television shows in has been called by Lewis Hamilton the equivalent of a, a toilet. <laughs> so it's a cupboard. Do yeah. you mean in size? or? Uh, I think both in size and decor. Um, we have Will Ferrell coming here. And he said, being on the show, it was like being in coach class on a transatlantic flight. It was very, very tight. It was very cozy. But this is the future of television in America. Yeah. Incredibly cheap costs, no camera person. Um, we just can film anything at any time, react to everything, get it up very quickly. And this is what it feels like to cover football in America. It's a very, as you can see, looking around, a very glamorous life in I, this toilet. You have that uh, picture of a very sad-looking Jurgen Klopp, uh, strategically positioned, and uh, nobody could uh, help see it. Is that your uh, your choice? 
Uh, it's a, it's hopefully a shot from Thursday night in the future uh, after the Europa League shot. But we've got them all. He's uh, beloved. He's a hero to many, not to me as an Evertonian. Do my best to promote the causes of the lesser teams across this great country of America where there's an incredible free-for-all, a great free-for-all for every club right now because America has fallen in love with football. It's like the Wild West. Yeah. And there are millions of young Americans who grew up playing baseball, basketball, gridiron football who now think only for various reasons about football in general and the Premier League in particular and are welding themselves to Premier League football clubs out of nowhere and falling fast truly madly deeply How was Will Ferrell when he was here? You name dropped nice and early How was, how was Will Ferrell what were you chatting to him about? He loves his football He's, uh, he's uh, always pictured um, in different team jerseys Chelsea jerseys I think he's been t- shot in a Manchester City jersey uh, he owns part of the new MLS team in Los Angeles, LAFC, and um, he just—I I thought he was a Chelsea fan because he's always, always wearing Chelsea jerseys. He says, "When you're him, you go to games in the Premier League. You're in the boardroom, and someone will say you look a bit cold, Will, <laughs> and you'll be like, yeah, it's a bit cold. It's like London in the winter.' And suddenly they'll put on a huge kind of Chelsea puffer jacket. <laughs> Five cameramen will descend out of nowhere." And you're just a Chelsea fan for life. Is he, in that respect, maybe a typical um, new uh, new style soccer fan in that he doesn't just support one team? He just, you know, he supports whatever team he feels like supporting on the day. Leicester City. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, you know, I mean, it, it's it, like this whole idea that you, uh, you know, the kind of fever pitch idea that this is like, you know, it's like it's like in your bone marrow, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's hard to see how that can apply in a, in a kind of globalised uh, football world. It's just not really the way it is anymore. It's true. When football is shorn of geography, then it is an incredible free-for-all. I mean, I'd say most Americans are picking teams out of nowhere. You know, many are attracted by the Bournemouth story. First half of the season, so a, 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 an onslaught towards Crystal Palace, the great fans, this dream story. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't done any analysis of how that fan base has stood up in the second <laughs> half of the season. But when Americans fall, they really do commit incredibly quickly. I watched Everton play Tottenham earlier in the season in a bar, and there was a guy who had a Tottenham tattoo uh, on his uh, on his forearm. And I asked him, "How did you, you know, when when did you get that?" He said, "I've loved Tottenham for about six years now." And I was like, "How did you choose them?" And he said, "My surname's Thompson. Yeah. When I got into football, they were sponsored <laughs> by Thompson Holidays." Um, and I was like, that is the most random reason to choose a team but he's gone in six years from like I've got to pick a team or I like Tottenham to getting the tattoo on the forearm and I do think that even though uh, the, the relationship is new and there's not that kind of geographical connect to the team mm. once um, Americans fall for a team they really do they fall incredibly hard as that tattoo suggests yeah. you uh, I mean your show has got a lot of good guests on. I mean, just recently, I mean, we mentioned Will Ferrell, you mentioned Borman's Eddie Howe was on recently, you know, Romelu Lukaku, the, the Attorney General of the United States, you were talking He's to the other day. That, I mean, so so obviously it's kind of, uh, it's it's got a good name now. It's, it's a well-established show, you know, good so good people are, are coming on the show. Uh, how long has it taken you to get to this point? Um, it's taken... A, a long, long time. We've been doing this for um, about seven years, and it's been a slow build, uh, a wonderful build. I think we um, timed it incredibly well. America's an amazing country. They still let bald men on television, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is one of the great... Maybe I'll be over. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing asset. Um, and so it's been a slow and gradual build, but most importantly, we just timed it really well because I arrived in America... In 1993, um, World Cup was here. It was meant to be the next big thing. It's always been the sport of the future. Our, yeah. jo- our joke on the show is that we talk about football, America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. Yeah. It's forever the next big thing in America. And it's been a series of boom and busts. When I first came here, and I, I'd watched Premier League football in the early days in a bar in Washington, D.C. with 10 English guys. We didn't know each other's names. We'd come religiously. It was always the worst game. It's always like Luton Town against Sheffield <laughs> Wednesday. And we'd feast upon it as if it was uh, Boca playing River Plate every week. And then it's just ch- World Cup to World Cup. There's been a big, it's gone from being a cult favourite that you'd go and watch if in an Italian restaurant for the Italian games or a Brazilian restaurant when 
um, when Brazil took the field to a game that more and more people followed week in, week out, mostly because of the EA Sports FIFA game. Mm. Can't tell you how much that game has been like the invisible hand really? that's really, introduced yeah. young Americans, a generation, to both the players and the teams yeah. and the storylines and the feel of playing like PSG. Yeah. feels deeply different to playing... Uh, like Crystal Palace or playing um, as Leicester City and it's it's kind of seeded people's understanding of the deeper um, mysteries of the game and then more and more television is available there's more Premier League football available here they can watch any game yeah, live any other country, like. yeah and that's just built this kind of like incredible drumbeat of America's now full-throated fascination with the game not just that but the, the big teams Bayern Munich PSG uh, um, Barca, Real Madrid, the big English teams, they're all now in love with America too and are involved in this arms race to kind of uh, try and snap up as many of the American hearts, minds and I guess wallets as they can do. So it's mutually uh, validating. America loves football, football loves America. Roger, when you first came over, uh, I'm interested to know what your plan was because we talked to Tommy Smith a good few years ago from ESPN and he very much said bald man on TV. Yeah, he's yeah. no problem to him either he's, he's a great a bald man he said he essentially came over around 93 uh, but certainly he was in America in the early 90s was painting and decorating essentially just halfway through a job one day he says I think I'll leave the paintbrush here and stroll down give ESPN a call see do they need anyone doing any World Cup stuff gets a bit of commentary a bit of colour whatever it is and you know, still going goes for many many years was it like that for you or were you journalistically minded um, you know I um, I was always more devoted to the painting and decorating <laughs> than t- it sounds like Tommy was but I, I arrived here around the same time and you could feel this kind of uptick I mean the World Cup was here it, it came it was meant to change everything it didn't. It left behind MLS, the league, which is only 20 years old and has grown incredibly fast um, in a very short time. And just when I arrived, one of the first things I realized was how fertile um, that uptick could be. And from the very beginning, I was kind of fascinated by uh, the tectonic plates of football that were clearly shifting. I think 98 um, was the first World Cup that really registered here. Uh, 2002 America did unbelievably well and each World Cup has been like a um, the, uh, a tide hitting the beach and leaving behind like a bigger and bigger audience yeah, yeah. Um, 2010 was really the first time football was broadcast intelligently here ESPN did an amazing job they really tried to focus on uh, authentically uh, investing they brought over real talent Michael Ballack became like a a cult yeah. hero over here for his broadcasting and they changed the way uh, football was uh, was perceived here and since 2010 it's just been on this incredible spike and we've really just been like a small boat on a very large wave and that wave is kind of the surging popularity we've just been beneficiaries of good timing Is it an internet related uh, phenomenon because I mean it seems like 98 is the first almost post internet world cup is that the reason this is suddenly you know it's sort of <laughs> got past the defences of the American media I mean I think there's a couple of things first thing is the US are, you know more and more of their players uh, not as many as the US would like but they're able to uh, uh, to play um, all over the world and that, that started really in the, in the 2000s. So they had kind of like local heroes that they could follow. Clint Dempsey, um, kind of like the, probably the, the, the best outfield player of his generation. And that piques their interest to have someone to root for. And the US has always overperformed in World Cups. They're a punchy collective. And that kind of um, led to a uh, deepening of the interest in the sport. Second thing is the EA Sports thing. I mean, it's a massive game here. Mm. Massive it's so quick to play you can quickly uh, understand the game and then you realize how much you have to master and it really has seeded um, a massive young audience the third thing is television so much football on the italian league the german league um, the spanish league every game the english i mean the columbia every single league at mx there's so much football inventory yeah. so for the first time Americans could be exposed to elite football on a whenever they want basis but the internet is a massive massive game changer it used to be uh, when I first came here every kind of club uh, website had a debate about plastic fans shut up if you don't go to the game every week you yeah. don't have any right to speak yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and that kind of plastic fan th- that debate has died off a little bit because right now thanks to the internet you can follow uh, football in England 
as closely informationally in terms of the flow of injuries, in terms of rumours, in terms of uh, interviews. You can follow it as closely from Los Angeles as you can uh, in the zip code, the, air, the postal code right by the stadium. Yeah. And that's been a game changer. And it, to some degree, and English uh, and Irish fans won't uh, like me to say this, but the clubs themselves care actually more about the fans who are in Los Angeles, Chicago and New York City than they do about the fans who are right by uh, their own stadium. That's why you have crazy kickoff times for travelling fans, but yeah. it just happens to be great timing for uh, in America or in, uh, in the Far East. So they've become incredibly important. The internet's done that. I mean, when Everton got into the FA Cup final last time, God love, 1995, <laughs> it wasn't on television here. I had to phone my dad up in Liverpool have him hold the telephone by the radio and, and hold on for 90 minutes while Everton thrashed Tottenham. Do you remember how much it cost? I was going to ask. In those, days, in those days, a phone call really was a phone call. It mm. cost me a fortune, but it was worth every penny. Uh, but nowadays, I mean, it's just everything is as accessible from America as it would be from Liverpool. Yeah. What about your, your, your side as, as a, somebody, a man with an English accent? Uh, does this make... Is this a, an advantage or now a disadvantage in... Uh, in given that you're communicating mainly with an American audience. I mean, for instance, I can re- recall uh, some uh, controversy online about, like, oh, why why do uh, these TV channels in America always want to have an English guy commentating? You know, why, what's wrong with having an American accent and all this kind of stuff? I mean, how does it... Uh, obviously, you're, you're kind of an outsider here. Well, you're at, your accent will mark as an outsider, even though you've been here for 20, you know, odd years. So I'm just wondering how it... Uh, you know, is it an advantage? Is it a plus? Is it a minus? How does it affect it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't have hair. I'm not a very intelligent, charismatic person. So clearly, to a large degree, my accent is my only asset. And it I, is cl- an asset. I yeah, I cling on to it. It's the only thing I've got going for me, Ken. It really is. Uh, I mean, at the same time, the future of football here is distinctly American. And uh, I mean, this incredibly uh, um, thoughtful. American voices who do uh, remarkable stuff with this game. There's a strain of commentators who are now uh, 100% American, both in background, birth, and accent. Um, so it's not really something that I think about. And well, there, there, say for instance, I was talking to George Vesey about uh, the way. The, why is it that Ameri- that football uh, took so long to kind of start to take off in, in the United States? Given that you know it was all the same European immigrants that were going to lots of other, like Argentina, for instance, where you know football was was kind of huge, and he reckon that part of it was that in America um, part of kind of integrating, becoming an American was kind of putting away putting away these childish things of you know European interests in, in soccer and you know your, your former language and all that kind of stuff um, with, you know as though the, the fact that soccer was seen as an outsider's pursuit yeah. is what held it back in America for a long time. I think that's fair I mean I think on the accent thing, I think the accent is actually less important than the lived experience of growing up in England in the 80s and 90s so when Americans fall for the sport they, they devote themselves to it they know more or they know as much as uh, kind of yet yeah, everyday fan uh, in England or in Ireland um, but what they don't know is what happened say before 2010 which is when they first got hooked so often American fans will know every single like statistic about any player from 2011 they can quote it by rote but you talk to them about what football was like in the 90s and it's just an empty uh, vacant space yeah. and so if we do have any assets and I've got to be honest that is incredibly debatable um, but we, we can kind of fill in that huge kind of memory gap for many of our fans have loved football by the way uh, f- from the 70s 80s 90s there's an incredible hardcore it's not like football arrived here yeah. out of nothing but there are a massive new uh, swarming fan base for whom the, the past that memory and we can we can offer some of that lived memory but I do think um, in terms of the arc of loving sport in America, there's, a, there's an old adage, um, which is that baseball, the golden era here, coincided with the, with the golden era of radio, the perfect radio sport. Mm. Uh, the NFL took off with the proliferation of television because it is, I mean, it's honestly, some would say better to watch it on television than it is to be live Unquestionably, yeah. at the stadium. And there is a possibility, and it's a possibility that I believe in and have uh, kind of like uh, benefited from that football, global football, elite global football is the is the kind of the sport of the internet age, and that's what we're living out here at the moment. Is there any sort of I mean, the hostility? Might be too strong, but you're talking about 
guys in the US who like football from in the 70s and the 80s all the way up and then you've got the new breed which is very recent and it's interesting you talk about 2010, 2014 I mean you notice that even outside the US guys like Bill Simmons are suddenly talking about soccer like it's a completely legitimate sport and almost every, and now the actually the outsiders are the ones who write there's the, there's the odd column during the 2014 World Cup about oh what's this soccer all about and you're thinking oh come on this is uh, you know, and it's an article from, from the 1990s or whatever but is there any sense that the new fan isn't completely welcomed by the hardcore guy who was there who was getting up at whatever hour of the morning to call home back in the 90s to get match reports? I mean it's very interesting I mean football is an incredibly diverse and eclectic uh, reality uh, in England, in Ireland it's even more so probably as you point out um, in America, the, the, the notion of the old American that like lashes out at, at, at football or soccer as they call it here is anti-American it's become almost a comic yeah, kind of knee-jerk. I, I remember when the U.S. was awarded the World Cup before 1994. Mm. Um, uh, Kemp, a congressman who was a former Kemp. Yeah, yeah, former yeah. quarterback, um, uh, took to the floor of Congress. <laughs> and I'm going to paraphrase it brutally. But he said something like, he said, I, I need to tell young Americans who know that football is something where you pass it uh, and throw it and catch it that the football that's coming is European and therefore socialist as if, <laughs> as if the World Cup that was coming was going to degrade American values and undermine the democratic uh, imperative the here in the United States <laughs> yeah I mean sadly um, uh, well, I, I mean, well, by sadly I meant thankfully that has not happened um, and you do you get in Ann Coulter if you know who that is oh, yeah. during the last World Cup came out of a ridiculous uh, article but it's treated now um, like a, the throwback and the kind of close-minded American exceptionalism. That, that legacy is long, long done. That well, debate has been like one out. Yeah, sorry, good question. What about fans, the new fans? Are they in any way unwe- unwelcome to the people who are already there? Is there any sense, oh, you're jumping on the bandwagon now, it's all very exciting now? Or is it just one happy family? Anyone involved as a supporter just wants more and more people in I'd, there? I'd say it's one family. Like any family, it's got mm-hmm. its uh, wonderful complications and that's what makes it more wonderful. I, I mean, I think there is a die-hard... Um, who's kind of like seeing all this, these new voices coming on and saying they don't know what they're talking about. If they did not know what English football was like in the 1970s or what American soccer was like, you know, if you didn't know the NASL, there are some yeah. old-timers who like football. There is a group of individuals who like football precisely because it wasn't the American sports and they saw themselves as different and Wonder separate. Does, yeah. I mean, it's a tiny minority, but what, what, is, what has happened here in the past... Um, in the past six years, it's completely it's been seismic. I mean, the tectonic plates have shifted, and it's just an overwhelming flood. And if there is any um, kind of a litany of moaning, it's been well drowned out by the masses who are running towards the sport. I remember I, I was at the um, uh, the MLS Cup final uh, in 2014. It was you know Robbie Keane scored against um, who were the Galaxy playing in New England Revolution? I can't oh remember. yeah, it was yeah. Two um, <clears> one, <throat> they won anyway. Uh, and I was after the game, ended up drinking with some LA fans who were like the LA. No, they, they have they have like an ultra group called the LA Riot, Riot Squad, Squad, but the, but the LA Riot Squad were considered by this group who were the Angel City Brigade to be like an a, you know an antiquated a bunch of like middle aged guys you know we're not interested in them, and uh, it was amazing to listen to these guys. <laughs> uh, I mean, there was this combination of you know like high end statistical geekery. With like, uh, with sort of um, uh, Green Street type, like really consciously modeling themselves on a kind of what they imagine a European firm was like, you know. I'm talking about the San Jose earthquakes, you know, that when they came down and what happened, and you know, when Manchester United played in Pasadena and how we sorted out a few of those guys, you know what I mean? Like yeah. these plastic fans and so yeah. on. I found that amazing, like to see this kind of. Uh, you know, borderline slavish imitation of, of a kind of what they are thinking is, is happening in Europe. I mean, do you think? Do you I mean, that's what football is it, to some degree. It's like that old joke about the Jewish guy who's found on a desert island and he built two synagogues because there was. When they said, "Why did you build two? He said, "I had to have one I didn't go to and that I hated, <laughs> so I could go to the other one." So wherever you have football fans, there's always a race to be more authentic. And in terms of kind of like the the, the masquerading as European football fans, that was here when MLS started. Uh, 20 seasons ago and it was funny to begin with I mean they were starting a fresh culture out of nothing a new they were starting completely new football cultures all over America and I remember that first season I was in Washington DC watching uh, their team there DC United even by name just kind of like you look at the names they're trying to uh, you know authentic 
um, f- football culture you call teams United City Soccer Club um, and to, uh, to be fair to the MLS when they started they tried to come up with crazy names too they had the Kansas City Wiz yeah. who played in this wonderful Technicolor jersey so the booth ends didn't, uh, didn't really work out and there was I remember watching there was like a self-consciousness immediately about the fan groups you know what, what culture do we create what chance do we have and it's funny you watch Will Ferrell LAFC his new team which won't play a game for a couple of years they, they unveiled a logo a logo um, at a gathering and they had 300 fans turn up and start chanting for LAFC a team that has no players no manager hasn't kicked a ball but people are already it's devoted like to them and so there is something that is self-conscious at the outset but I can't tell you how quickly uh, uh, American football fans find their way and if you go to a football game um, in Portland right now if you go to a football game in Seattle and you watch there I mean, it is to me. It's like it's like going to a Dortmund. It's what Crystal Palace was like at the beginning of the even even a team Kansas City, mm. the middle of this country, the heartland of this country. They have built a stadium, a tiny jewel box, in the middle of that city that is packed with a sporting culture that revolves around that team, and it is phenomenal. And when I see that and I experience that, and I, I realize I'm in the middle of kind of like basketball college basketball territory I, I find it quite moving I, I find it like you, it's hard to go to Kansas it's hard to, it's impossible we went to the gig in Portland they had 5,000 people come out it's hard to go there and not feel A that they built an incredibly authentic remarkable vibrant football culture mm. uh, but B it's truly American and then you project out that future 10 years 20 years and it's incredibly uh, to me moving about what they're building here seeing as when I first came here the argument about whether football was democratic or whether it was socialist and European, then it was a serious argument. And it felt that to be if any kind of a football fan was to be an outsider. So the change in the past 30 years, Ken, has been remarkable. That transformation has been full-throated. And when you project that out 20, 30 years, you can see there's something remarkable going on here right now. Yeah, and it must be a great thing to be involved in, putting those kind of numbers. As you say, Roger, you guys are are centrally involved in the coverage of the sport. Can I ask you a final question, though, about unidentified fan, uh, Robbie Keane, <laughs> <laughs> who has moved on from those days now. And so, well, he was doing... I think he, he was started like a, like a train anyway. What sort of impact has he made in the league? God, unidentified fan is possibly... There'll be a one-man play at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in about 10 years' time. <laughs> just about that one photograph. It's the most damning indictment of a human being, especially... I won three championships in four years. Especially <laughs> considering he scored about 1,127 goals in those three seasons. He's an amazing man. He's a remarkable man. Um, MLS is a fascinating beast. It's a league that is in incredible transition. Big-name players come over here. Some of them thrive. Sebastian Giovinco, phenomenal footballer, doing unbelievable here, and he will have he can, he will make a huge amount of money for decades if he plays it right because the opportunity is real. He's given it his all. Americans revere him. Mm. Other footballers come over here, they phone in their performance. They find it as, as Stevie G said after the last. He said it's very hard here. You travel far. There's altitude. There's, there's all high mountains. Yeah, and, high mountains like, and, and they become incredibly befuddled, and it's really quite embarrassing to see. I mean, I, I do. I think about Stevie G and just like his life in Liverpool, driving around a, a city in which he, a city kingdom in which he was the king. Mm. And right now, I imagine him driving around with Matt Quest on, just being like, the 405 goes to the 90, goes to what? And he's just not able to get anywhere. Never mind kick a football straight, but just adjusting to like the, the LA life. I can't imagine how uh, he is doing that. So credit Robbie Keane, because he came here, he took it from the very beginning incredibly seriously. And when you watch him train with the LA Galaxy, he is a man-possessed. He is propelling that team, takes it incredibly seriously. He drives that team on. He asks a lot of himself and the players. And when you speak to the young Americans around him, he's the one that um, they've learned the most from. And if America, please God, because the big next game changer will be America doing something serious, doing something serious at a World Cup. And if that happens in the next 20 years, I hope in my lifetime, God, I live to see it, Robbie Keane will have done a huge amount as much as he's done for Ireland with his 473 caps mm-hmm. he will have done for this country he will have done as much for this country as he will have done uh, for Ireland in terms of propelling the game forward because his legacy here is that big even if he is an identified fan <laughs> well it's great to hear Roger and I think you you need to paint that one man show before anyone else hears this idea <laughs> and takes it off you Roger Bennett Men and Blazers thanks so much for being so hospitable today thanks for having me on guys FIFA made a movie recently did they? 
John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. God, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sat Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. With one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I do. And that was it. With one or two expletives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, FBI. And we've used the figure there. Well done to you. All right, hope you enjoyed that chat with Roger Bennett there from Men and Blazers in his, as it, at his offices, as he said. Ken, actually, we had the chat in his studio, a very, uh, I'd, say, I'd say it's a very pared down studio from what you might expect on an NBC TV show. They're going for a very sort of uh, minimalist model. Is that the way to describe it in terms of the, the actual setup there? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I suppose it goes to show if the, uh, if the content is, is good, then you don't uh, necessarily need a sort of Middle-earth, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, CGI uh, background. God, they don't even have a waterfall in this studio? God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no waterfall, no sort of gold-flecked uh, uh, marble, uh, you know, whatever. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah. What did you take out of that chat? I mean, there's quite a few good points made there by Roger. The importance of video games is something that he yeah. uh, stressed a couple of times. You know, he was really wanted to hammer home that point that the fact that the the the, the football video game market exploded uh, really helped to kind of cement the popularity of the sport over there. Well, I think so because I mean, the, you know, I mean, have you played any video games in recent times? Not in recent times. I've played, played plenty. Of I mean, FIFA back you've, in you've, the day. But you've probably played like uh, you know. If I know you, oh, actually, Owen. sorry, Ken, I did. I played Tetris on the flight on the way back. You played, te- <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> but, but, but I, 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 rarely for me, I'd actually slept on the flight for once, so I was kind of quite oh. perked up for the last hour, and I thought, I'm ready to no, forget movies, forget even reading. I'm gonna, pl- I'm gonna really engage my brain here and play some games. Brain training. So yeah. I went for Tetris, got to level eight, and then it just got too fast. I mean, it's hard to, you know, they just start coming apart. How do you? How does anyone but, get past but, level eight? You're always know. just waiting for the long. Thin one, aren't you? When you're playing, yeah, until it comes up at the wrong time, or you yeah. don't, you accidentally switch into a flat one when yeah. really you want to just down the side. I hear you. Another one with four. Bring- yeah, anyway, Ken. Sorry, what were you going to say? If I know you, Owen, I think that you have probably in the past played John Madden's uh, football. Oh uh, yeah, NFL football. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I'd say you have. Yeah, I'd say you probably played a little bit of Tiger Woods golf. A little bit, Ken. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you have. Yeah. That, all right, yeah. I'd say. I'd say you might even have played a bit of whatever they call it, like you know, international champion rugby or whatever the you know. Jonah Lomb rugby, rugby yes, can yeah. Jonah Lomb is rugby, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I'd say you've probably played a little bit of FIFA slash PES, uh, kickoff, sensible soccer, whatever. One of these kind of or all, one all, or more football. All, games. Of, all of the above, can yeah. Now, which is the best of those? Which which well, sport translates best to the video game format? Oh well, sen- football, and if you want to be specific, sensible soccer obviously is the best game. I mean, the graphics, sensible, the graphics are incredible. Sensible soccer, it's like you're God out almighty. on that pitch. <laughs> um, it's like you're hovering four hundred feet above that that pitch. Yeah, well, I think it's true. I mean, that's that's my opinion. I mean, you might say that I'm biased, but it is. Um, I do think that something about the kind of flow or sort of. Uh, essential simplicity of the game does translate quite well to a video game, and uh, it's it's. I think that's you know it's it's become obviously huge hugely successful, like a kind of a, a monster sort of a phenomenon. Um, and this is something. I mean, Americans play a lot of video games, like everybody does these days. I mean, I don't know if you've ever played a little bit of FIFA, maybe late at night. Sometimes you're, uh, sometimes you you know you, you're playing against someone. Uh, and oftentimes you can hear the other person because they've set it up so you can hear them them talking. And sometimes you realise you're playing against maybe a pair of little American brothers. So you can hear the other people talking, the guys you're playing against in another yeah. part of the world. All right. 
if they've like if they've set it up yeah. to to have you know voice or whatever, so you can actually hear them. That's strange. And um, yeah, I suppose the later it gets at night, the more likely it is that you're playing against somebody from America. And there are times when it seems as though most of America is playing FIFA 16. Um, and I suppose uh, when you add up all the billions and trillions of man hours uh, that have been spent uh, in that activity, uh, listening to uh, you know Martin Tyler. Uh, pronounced names like uh, Alderweireld and uh, I think I just mangled the pronunciation of, of Alderweireld there but uh, you know it's it sort of begins to um, drum in a certain uh, familiarity uh, with the uh, with the landscape I mean I suppose the thing is that people actually end up being more interested in the computer game than the actual game I mean the actual game to somebody who plays a lot of FIFA it can sometimes seem quite boring. Here is a game in which I'm not in control of any of the players. And in fact, uh, my uh, will has no bearing whatsoever on the outcome. Um, as, as, as to whether, uh, you know, why should I watch this? This is quite boring. Why shouldn't I just play FIFA instead? Uh, so as to whether this is uh, ultimately a good or bad thing for the game, it's too soon to say. Uh, but it does mean that there's a kind of uh, a big uh, familiarity that wasn't there before. And uh, that is one of the uh, that's been one of the main drivers of it. Have anything you want to say before we go about Barcelona's Jordan Spieth like collapse, which continued to pace this weekend? This is really the most amazing thing. That's I'm one of the most incredible things that's happened this season. Not maybe not the most incredible, but the, the idea of that team um, suddenly just losing it like this. I'm wondering what's what's going on here because I mean I keep talking about Michael Ledrup's you know prophecy, and you know while I think that his. Uh, you know, he, he his kind of, you know, well, the Catalan, maybe Catalans have a tendency to sort of freak out a little bit, you know, when, when things start going wrong, there's a tendency to maybe doubt and start pointing fingers. And, you know, that could explain part of this, but not all of it. It's just, I'm wondering what's what's happening here. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a, for instance, at the uh, press conference, there was an incident with Le, Luis Enrique. Uh, Luis Enrique is obviously in a bad mood at the moment. This doesn't, this really doesn't look that good. Luis Enrique, the coach who won the treble last season, really didn't get all that much credit for it. I mean, maybe he won UEFA Coach of the Year, but you know, that's just he won all those trophies. Uh, he kind of had to win that. It wasn't as though people were blown away by uh, by his work or or congratulating him for managing to, you know, win the treble with this team. You know, pe- pe- people were looking at the players and saying, well this is an unbeatable team. You know, if these players are playing well, nobody can beat them. And I think that's still fairly, uh, fairly much true. But the problem is the players aren't performing. You know, you've got like, uh, I mean, Neymar seems only to perform now in terms of his, uh, his, um, uh, trying to, his goading and belittling of the opposition in defeat. I mean, he, he, he was, he was going around, he was kind of, he, he was slapping one of the, um, um, Valencia players afterwards. He supposedly was taunting them about how much more money he was making than them. Uh, and all this kind of nonsense. Um, but the the thing that I was referring to with, in the press conference with Luis Enrique uh, was a journalist who said, who asked a question about the physical preparation of the players, you know, and whether, I suppose the, the implication is, your players seem to have uh, gassed out at a pretty significant stage of the season. You know, I'm sure everything's been, been uh, done correctly there. And uh, Enrique just looked at him and said, well, sorry, what's your surname again? And the guy said Mallow, because that was his surname. And uh, Enrique said, next question. Uh, and the thing is that Mallow in Spanish also means bad. Uh, you know, it's like, um, it's just the word for bad. This man's surname happens to be that. But obviously here was Enrique putting down a journalist who, obviously he knew he knew the answer to the question that he was asking. Um, to avoid a question about physical preparation, um, evidently a question that annoyed him and questions that annoy managers in that way I think are usually close to the bone something is something's gone wrong there I mean Lionel, Lionel Messi has had his his quietest run of games uh, since his uh, since the last time that he was playing with an injury um, which I guess would have been the 2013-2014 season when he was really in quite poor form for a lot of it and the reason was that he hadn't recovered from injuries that he's had and he you know he, he always wants to play he kind of is ignoring advice to to take a break and i wonder if something like that is going on here because messi is too good to play like this i mean he did he did manage to score uh, against valencia but you know once again a minimal impact i mean if messi's playing well his team usually wins the game and he hasn't been playing well and it's been going on for more than a month 
And I wonder if there's some physical problem there that um, that Barcelona haven't uh, kind of faced up to. All right, we better let you go and commune with nature there, Kevin. What's your plan for the day? Just sit there. Oh God, no! I'm not going to sit here. I'm going to, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go over. I'm going to have myself a continental breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to have some watermelon, some cantaloupe, a hard-boiled egg. Uh, I might have a little bit of raisin and cinnamon toast with uh, cream cheese. I'm going to have two cups of coffee, and um, then I'm going to go fill up my uh, water bottle, get myself a couple of energy bars. Uh, put on my hiking boots, which unfortunately, I only have to say, have started to smell really badly. And two pairs of socks because I started getting a blister yesterday, and, I'm, and I don't want that. I don't want that to, to happen again today. And I'm going to hike off into Acadia, and uh, hopefully, I'll be back at about uh, at about four o'clock. You didn't mention uh, and then sun I'm, cream. But then I'm going to eat a lobster. You're going to so, eat a lobster, yeah. Well, you did mention sun cream there, Ken, but we can only assume that you've learned your lesson from last week. No, actually, well, the thing is that this this place that I'm in, Bar Harbour, um, is a kind of a hangout for the rich and, and famous. Well, actually, it used to be, but then they had a devastating fire in 1947 that uh, destroyed most of the island. Um, so it, it's not as it's not as sort of Gatsby-ish a hangout as it used to be. But, you know, you still get some celebrities. Tom Selleck, for instance, according to a Ooh, taxi driver. A-list is a regular here in Bar Harbour in the summer months. Now, we are slightly before the actual high season here. It's April. It's often freezing. It's actually really, really sunny at the moment, so we've kind of been lucky. Uh, but such is, in fact, such was the unbroken sunshine yesterday on that I um, I did put a little bit of sun cream on my nose because I, I know when I've been beaten. I knew I didn't want to do any more damage than nose. It's practically hanging off me. But I did allow my arms to, to get the sun. And such is the rich mahogany tan on my arms that I'm wondering if I mightn't be mistaken for Tom Selleck by one or two of the <laughs> townspeople. Tom Selleck's back. He's, he's shaved off the mustache. Uh, but just judging by the, uh, by, the bronzed, uh, by the bronzed skin and you know, the huge and the massive guns, that is Tom Selleck. He's done something uh, with the hair there. We're not quite sure what, but yeah. Well, Possibly for a role. <laughs> Does Tom Selleck but, uh, still act? Uh, I, I, I haven't seen him in anything for a while, but that doesn't mean he's not working. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe he just does art house stuff yeah. these days. All right. Listen, Ken, enjoy that hike there um, and do put a little bit of extra sun cream on if you can. Thanks very much, Ken. I'll be back on Thursday. I'll see you then. Looking forward to seeing you all. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for all the positive feedback on the New York shows. We really enjoyed bringing them to you. And we'll talk soon.